Go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. The Gospel of John, chapter 1. We are continuing our Advent series this morning from an unusual Christmas text. We're looking at what John has to say about the coming of Christ to the earth. Now, normally, as I said last week, we look at the synoptic Gospels, the, not, the Gospels that are a synopsis of the life of Christ and one of the descriptors, of course, we had was that the synoptic Gospels kind of tell us what Jesus said and did, or tell us events in his life. But John is more identified with who Jesus is, that Jesus is God. Jesus is the Son of God. He tells us in John chapter 20, the purpose for writing his Gospel is that we may know who Jesus is, and in the knowing, we might believe. It's an unusual Christmas text, but it's one that has been really it's just really exciting for me because Christmas is about Jesus. It's about who Jesus is and what Jesus came to accomplish. And our Christmas story, during the Christmas season, like no other time of year, people tend to be more kind. Have you noticed that? If people let you in traffic on Woodruff Road, or are they still cutting you off? Have, have, have they been friendly in the lines at the checkout counter? As we get closer to Christmas, people will tend to be a little bit more generous, a little bit more sensitive to the needs of others. And of course, our children are going to transition and hopefully be on their best behavior. They want to make sure they end up on the right list uh, at Christmas time. Um, Grinches can grow a heart. Scrooges can replace Bah Humbug with Merry Christmas. And both small and large acts of kindness are done. And we think, well, maybe, just maybe, there's some good in everybody. And maybe the world could be a good place. And we will be like all the who's in Whoville, uniting hearts and hands and singing together. We see, see, and this is one of the mindsets that come. We can be good if we just wanted to be good. John tells us the setting, of course, of where Christ came and when Christ came. And so I want us to read, and I'm going to do something a little bit different. I don't know that we'll have all these verses on the screen, but I want to start at verse 1 and read all the way through verse 13. And so I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John, the very first chapter. And we're going to start at 1 in our reading today and read through verse 13. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, literally toward God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. This begins our text today. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. But the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it, or the darkness has not apprehended it. There was a man from God whose name was John. And John, specifically, he came to be a witness, to bear witness of that light. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Now back to the Word. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came into his own, came to his people, and his own did not receive him. But listen, 
But to all who did receive him, who, what does that mean? Who believed in his name, he gave the right, the power, the privilege to become the children of God. Who were born, not physically, not of blood, not simply a decision we make, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born how? Born of God. Father, thank you for this great truth. And I pray that you'll just speak to our hearts today, that we'll grasp it, that we'll understand it, that we'll em- embrace the message of Christmas as delivered by John. In your name I pray. Amen. The world that the Lord came into. Now again, this text begins in the title of this sermon. Jesus is life and light. But what is the context in which he came into? The context, the world that we came to. What kind of world did Jesus come to? And that's where I want us to start. Now, I know many of us want to be inspired. We've had so much going on and we want to come to a Christmas sermon to be lifted up. And this first point is not a happy point, but it's true. And it is more important that we understand the truth of it than that we gloss over it. More about that in a moment. But if you're following along and you're listening, God, I want you to recognize that Jesus came into a world of death and darkness. Jesus came into a world of death and darkness. What is the very first thing that John tells us in this passage, starting in verse 4, light and life, he came into what? He, the light shone in darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Look down at verses 10 and 11. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Verse 11, he came into his own, and his own people did not receive him. The first, the first Christmas truth, if you will, is that we needed a Christmas We needed a Savior. We needed life, and we need light because the world, in contrast to life, is dead, spiritually dead. In contrast to light, is in darkness and deceived. Fun Christmas sermon, isn't it? Great way to start. But I want you to understand what it means. Because this is is a truth that we see throughout Scripture repeated over and over again. Ephesians 2 immediately comes to mind. And you have He made alive or quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin. The first statement that we see here is darkness and death. And the way it's brought out in this is the darkness could not apprehend it. The darkness could not overcome it. His people did not receive it. Jesus Christ's life is light, but people didn't receive it. They couldn't understand it, couldn't grasp it. Why? Because they're spiritually dead. And the dead have no response, no sensitivity to stimuli. None. Imagine, again, fun Sunday morning, a dead body. Void of life. Just there. You can talk to it. You can explain things to it. You can get frustrated when it doesn't respond and push or cajole or strike it. But it will not respond. It cannot respond. It has no life. And in the same way, spiritually dead people are spiritually insensitive. Like a body, no sensitivity to stimuli. Incapable of being responsive to spiritual stimuli. The light shines in darkness, but it goes right on past. It's not perceived. Now here's the... the, it It would be one thing if we could say, here are spiritually alive people and here are spiritually dead people. And you can look at them and immediately know the difference is, but you can't do that. You can be spiritually dead, physically alive, and you can fill your lives with goodness and with good activities. You can enjoy things like 
college football. You can be active in good deeds. You can appreciate the arts. You can be musical. You can follow the news. But when you present the truth of Scripture that we're dealing with today, the truth about sin and spiritual death and rebellion against God and the penalty for sin, when you bring the truth about the cross and the death of Christ, they, they'll think, oh, that's disgusting. I don't want to hear that. I don't like it. I don't agree with it. Or just uninterested. Well, I'll get to that when I'm old. I'll deal with that later. More common around here is, and I say here in upstate Greenville, are people say, oh yeah, I know that. I get it. I know what Christmas is about. Jesus is the reason for the season. And yet, there's no evidence of life. There's no sight, no joy, no genuine peace with God. It seems to have no effect on them. So they can say, yes, I believe. And yes, Jesus is the reason for the season. And yet, they can make choices that dishonor God and make decisions that are continually rebellious against God without any sign of conviction or even awareness that they're doing it. Do you know people like this? Do you know what I'm talking about? But then when truth comes... When spiritual life comes to you as light. When the Holy Spirit of God convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment. The way he illuminates. He turns the light on. Then all of a sudden, you begin to understand things and become sensitive to things that you weren't aware of before. And you begin to think things like, why haven't I seen this before? And the reason you didn't see it before was because you were dead. You were spiritually closed to stimuli, stimuli in darkness. Now, this is not a proper, popular truth. To say that... Our sins have separated between us and our God. To say that mankind's only hope is Christ Jesus and without Christ there is no hope, that is not a popular truth. People think that's too harsh. That dead is too strong a word. Wouldn't it be better if we just said mankind's sick and we need healing? Mankind's broke and we need fixing. Well, the problem with those statements is they don't go far enough. And the Bible very clearly states that we are dead in our sins and that we need to be made alive together with Christ. So I want to ask you, and think with me for a moment, if you will. In what ways is the world around you in darkness? Is there evidence of a need for a Savior? We sang this song, song this morning, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. I love that song. I was on a website this week, and I was kind of prepping for this sermon and for some other things that are coming up. I did some research on the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It was first written in the 15th century, and it was written in Latin. Uh, there are multiple different translations, and some of the translations have as many as 14 verses. When it was first... <laughs> When it was first uh, 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 sung, when it was put to music, it was put to different tunes. And the church determined eventually, and the tune that became popular, was very similar to what we had today. Now, we were more upbeat today. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, which I love. I think Christmas should be a time of celebration. But the Advent season is not typically a time of celebration leading up to Christmas. It's a time of mourning and a time of woe. The darkness in the world at Jesus' time was political. They were under Roman control. It was secular. Sin abounded. And there was clear need of a Savior. 
Uh, and Jesus came in the fullness of time. He came after the Greeks, and Alexander the Great could conquer the world. And Greek was the world language, if you will, the language of commerce and business. And the Romans had come, and they had created ways to travel and roads, the Appian Way and others, that allowed people to travel and the gospel to be spread around the world. And well, though the time was right, and it was the fullness of time, it was a dark time. God had not sent a prophet to, the, to Israel for over 400 years. To declare his word. He, they had recorded the words of the prophets. They had recorded them and kept them. They had the words of Moses. They had the words of wisdom. And they would study them. But there was no sign of life. In what way is our world in darkness? And in the main way. The scriptural way. The way that we need to grasp and understand. Is we're in darkness. Because our sins have separated between us and our God. And we are spiritually dead. Apart from Christ. And we need life. We need life. And that takes us really kind of to the heart of this message. It's the second point I want you to write on your outline. It's that Jesus came to a world of death and darkness, but He came to bring new life through new birth. Now, this is important. And I want you to get this, especially at Christmas time, because I hope that you guys, when you're talking about Christmas and you're talking about all the trappings of Christmas, that you talk about the reason for Christmas, that you talk about peace with God, that you talk about what it means to know Christ as Savior. How do we get right with God? We get right with God only through one means, just through a new birth. So what happens is when, when you're sharing the gospel with someone or you're sharing scripture with someone or you have a relationship with someone and you've mentioned the Bible or the church or they're reading or they've gotten a track or they stumbled across a, a podcast or they stumbled across, across a broadcast and all of a sudden they begin to recognize that there is a God and that He is holy and there becomes a sensitivity to our own sin and our own guilt before holy God what's the first thought the first thought was I'm messing up I got to get better I got to improve you're right something's not right here and it doesn't take much to convince people that something's wrong that that there's something missing that there's a a gap a void but the default response is I've got to turn over a new leaf the default response is I've got to get I've got to be a better person But here's what Jesus says, or John describing Jesus says, All who did receive Him, verse 12, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become the children of God, who were born, listen, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Born of God. Born again. Now clearly, He's not talking about a physical birth here. But he's talking about a birth that brings you into spiritual life. This is a major event. All right? this, this is not something that just happens and you wake up one day and it's happened and you don't really tell a, a whole difference. Birth is traumatic and yet it is extremely joyous. It is traumatic in that it reveals to us our sin and we cast ourselves upon God in repentance. It is joyous in that God saves us and cleanses us and gives us new life and makes us what we say here often, and makes us into something that we've never been before. Never been before. The the text, how do we do this? It's not the will of the flesh. It's not the will of man. It's not simply that I need to improve my life. And here's, here's, I think, kind of the point, if if you want to write something down. God's not out to make better people or to make people better. God's out to make new people, to bring people to life. Uh, another way of, of saying that is God's not out to make you morally good. God is out to make you spiritually alive. When you come to Christ, 
He changes you. Now, the natural result of that, of course, is that you're going to be increasingly morally good. But it's from a completely different motivation. You're going to be changing, transforming by the power of the Spirit who lives within you in order to please God, enabled by the Spirit. But the new life, the life in Christ, being born again, is characterized by joy, by peace with God, by confidence in what God has done, not by a desperate striving to somehow placate a, a judgmental God. Oregon and I were talking this morning. He told the story of a business acquaintance who he had talked to who was raised in the church, had ancestors or father-grandfather who had been pastor. He had studied other religions, and he said, oh, everybody's good, everybody's okay. Uh, you know, you, you just want to make sure that you're doing more good than you are bad. And I saw an interview not too long ago with an actor uh, who said, the way I try to get through life is every time I do something bad, I want to make sure I'm doing something good to offset it. I want to make sure that I'm trying to accumulate enough good. And, and here's the problem with that. You can't do it. Uh, first of all, very basically, how many transgressions does it take before you're guilty of a transgression? J- just one. And if you're guilty in any part of the law, you're guilty of the whole law. You stand guilty of the judgment of the law. But it's more than simply trying to be good. It's more than simply trying to be ethical. It is a divine interaction where the Spirit of God brings you to life. You become a new creation in God. Your life is characterized by joy, peace with God, confidence that what God has begun in you, He will bring it to completion. Your confidence is not in what you do, it's not, uh, but it's in what Jesus has done. It's not like, again, the, the mindset many people have, and I'll see if I can illustrate it this way, is, is like all your deeds are bricks, and if you do a bad thing, you put a brick in that pile. If you do a good thing, you put a brick in this pile, and you want to have a bigger pile on the good side than you do on the, on the bad side. And, and, and hope that things turn out all right, that, that, that is a life filled with frustration. That is a life filled with misery. There's a difference between trying to be a good person, to be right with God, and trusting in what Christ has done to make you right with Him. And, and one of them is simply how you relate to truth. How do good people, ethical people, moral people, apart from God, relate to truth? That's true. I believe it. I'm going to stand for it. I'm going to fight for it. I'm going to take all of my energy and effort, and I'm going to do the best I can to walk in that truth. And all of a sudden, now they have a standard of expectation that is here that they seek to hold to, and it's like an externally imposed rule, a structure that they're living under. Spiritually alive people know something different about truth. We encounter the truth of God's Word, and we realize it's alive. I love the passage. I think it's Colossians chapter 3.16, where Paul is writing to the church at Colossians, and he says, Let the Word of God dwell richly in you. And you'll be reading or studying or hearing the Word of God, and all of a sudden, there is illumination and understanding and embracing, and there is a joy, even when it's harsh on us, and it points out an area that we've not surrendered, or when it points out a truth that is affirming and encouraging. We, we engage truth as living truth. 
And it comes inside of us and it does some kind of surgery on us. It, it changes our way of thinking and our believing. And so we don't have to live with this continual sense of guilt because we have a God who, whose mercies are new every morning and who separates us as far from our sin as the east is from the, the west. We don't have to live with anxiety because we have a Father who knows when the sparrow falls and we are so much more than a small bird. And He cares for us and provides for our needs. And it becomes our goal, our aspiration to do good, just simply to please Him, to walk in obedience with Him. So much of this is the testimony of Christians, and you guys will be aware how. Uh, Martin Luther served as a priest in the church and tried to be good for so long until he came to the end of himself and said, I just can't be good. And his whole focus was it's no longer by works, it is only by faith. And that became the theme of the Reformation and the aspect of the Reformation Then he led. John Wesley in England, the great Methodist preacher, tried and tried and tried by works to satisfy God. And he said, I found out that God was insatiable with his requirement for righteousness until I came to cast myself upon the grace of God. I will tell you, the most miserable people I know are not lost people who are rebelliously lost. The most miserable people I know are religious people who are rebelliously lost. Because they've spent their whole life trying to live up to someone else's expectations and requirements. And now they've recognized that God has expectations and requirements called the law of God. And now they're amping up trying to live up to a higher standard. And it's failure after failure and frustration after frustration. And then it becomes some sort of self-deception. And, and, and it becomes a, a bitter... Ex- and by the way, these are the mean people. You guys know mean church people? Have you all ever met mean church people? They go to other churches, but I'll be glad to introduce you to some of them at some point. But have you have you met mean church people? The ones who are always saying, you shouldn't dress like that, you shouldn't look like that, you shouldn't talk like that, you shouldn't go here, you shouldn't go there. Here's my standard that I'm living up to and I'm going to impose my standard upon you. Now, God has a standard, please don't misunderstand me. The Word of God as truth comes in and gives us the grace of God and directs our decisions out of joy seeking to please Him, but not in some external imposed structure that somehow makes us pleasing to God. Do you understand the difference? It's an amazing truth. And so the difference between how ethical good people and Christians relate to truth is one, but also it's different how we view ourselves. There are a lot of people I know who are trying to be good to get to heaven, and here's basically what they think about themselves. They generally feel pretty good about themselves. Hey, I'm one of the good guys. I go to church. I'm kind to my family. I provide. I work. I'm socially responsible. I give to charities. As a matter of fact, and get this underlying thought here. If more people would like me, this would be a much better world. And there's this almost sense of arrogance, pride, humble arrogance, if you will, or at least some sort of false humility. Here's the problem, though. If you scratch too deep, you'll find that underneath that becomes a lot of insecurity, a lot of questioning. Spiritually alive people, though, how do we view ourselves? How do we view ourselves? Our lives are defined by the gospel. 
Our lives are defined by the gospel. First of all, the bad news. We recognize that we are separated from God by sin, spiritually dead. And that there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. That, that, that we are, like Paul said, the chief of sinners. You get that and you grasp it. And it wants to make you depressed and it wants to make you frustrated and kind of down the dumps, but it doesn't because it is accompanied by greater truth. And that is we have a God who loves us just like we are. Loves us too much to leave us like we are. A God who has made a way through the Lord Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for sin and grants life through faith by grace. By grace through faith. It's important that we understand um, that the gospel informs us. And so we recognize my life before revolved around me. And there was a time when I was spiritually dead. But on the basis of what Jesus did, God has welcomed me into his family. And you know what it does? It makes me humble and it makes me joyous and dependent upon him. You guys remember Paul in the book of Philippians where he gives kind of his curriculum vitae? I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee, the one that everybody wanted to be like. And he looks at all of his accomplishments. And how does he classify them at the end of that? He says they're dung. They're a pile of rubbish, a pile of trash. But what about his sinfulness and all the sins? That's also done too. That no longer establishes my identity. Why? Because my sins are forgiven. My sins are washed. There's one thing I desire. One thing that encompasses my attention. That I may know Him. The fellowship of His suffering. The the continuous power of His presence. That I may know Him. And that's what Christmas is about. Why did Christmas come? Why did Jesus come? Yes, He came to die. He came to pay the penalty for our sin. He came as life, and He came as light to shine darkness. Now, I will tell you that you will find in the world today, and I hope you guys interact with lost people. We do tend sometimes to just surround ourselves with believers, but a lot of times in the world that we live in, we're able to, on the job or in other social settings, we have a good bit of exposure to people who don't believe the Word of God, who aren't exposed to truth and i hope that you interact with them but one of the things that you will hear when you do and i mean interact with them with the gospel interact with them with truth with talking about jesus but one of the things that you'll hear is that's too harsh that's too harsh some people may need to be born again but you can't say everybody needs to be born again and the answer to that question is god says everyone needs to be born again and it is universally true. It is unilaterally true. And so we get accused of being sectarian or narrow-minded or you're one of those one-way people. Even the church, early church was known as people of the way. And the answer to that question is, we do. Not with any sense of pride, but because it is more important that we know the truth and that we tell the truth than that we try to satisfy you or please you. You understand Christianity, when we speak into people's lives, we don't come back and say, oh, listen, behind every cloud there's a silver lining. Oh, listen, I know it's bad now, but it's going to get better. We're not some sort of blind optimist when people are struggling in their sin. We say, as lovingly as we can, the wages of sin is death. For all is sin and comes short of the glory of God. And that's not good news, but here's good news. We sing about it at Christmas time. The God who created you 
invaded history and took on the form of a man born and a baby laid in a manger who lived without sin, which you can't do and I can't do. But he did as God and as man, qualified as a man to pay the penalty for your sin and mine. And that's what happened on the cross. And that's how you tie, one of the ways that you tie that truth of the cradle and the cross together, as Mark mentioned earlier today. It's important that we grasp it and that we get it. Now, and I want to close with this. The, uh, The new birth makes us part of the family. You get some family rights. You guys like, uh, do y'all gather as family for Christmas? Do you have family connections and family relationships? Um, We have done all sorts of things in my family. We have done everybody by everybody gifts. Have y'all ever done that? Everybody by everybody gifts. But as our family grew, we decided to do something else. We decided to draw names between the family groups. Uh, you know, our kids have their families, and then they're all part of our family as well. So we decided to draw. I think that's what we're doing this year. Uh, I'm waiting on my wife to tell me exactly what it is I'm supposed to be doing this year. But we decided to draw names. I remember when I was younger, and I have three siblings, we also decided to draw names. But I always wanted to get my name drawn by my brother. He's my twin brother. He knows what I like. And I didn't want socks or clothes. I wanted my brother, who knows what I like, and who, by the way, was employed and making pretty good money to draw my name when it came time for choosing who we want and so sometimes in our families we kind of look like all right what is the benefit how do we connect well let me let me just make something clear that it says to all who received him and it describes received as believed on his name believed who he said he was believes what he says about us trust in him for salvation alone all who believe in him to them he gave the power the right to become the sons of god And we have family rights. And I want to just highlight one of those as we close this service this morning because it is Peace Sunday. Tim and Beth shared with us passages, Romans chapter 5, verse 1, about how, therefore, having been justified, we now have what we never had before, and that's peace with God. How, as Tim prayed, we have the other side of that peace. Not only do we have peace with God, we're able to live in peace because of our peace with God, because we place our trust fully in God. What does it mean to be a child of God? We have peace with God, but if God's a judge, and if God judges sin, how can that happen? Well, picture in your mind in the Old West, a hanging judge. One who executes law to the fullest extent. One who is known for handing out the right penalties and can't be bribed and can't be corrupted. He's a hanging judge, one everyone fears. But at home he's got a little boy. And when he's home he's wrestling with his little boy on the living room floor. 
He plays game and plays catch and plays ball. And that boy relates to his father as a son to his father. And that father relates to that boy as a father to a son. An Abba father, a dear father, an intimate father. Not in his role as judge. The father overtakes judge in the relationship. Let me tell you, some of us, some people that I know and talk to, some of you maybe, live in fear An active fear, not a holy reverential fear, but simply a fear of what you're going to face, a fear of God. And it is appropriate to live in awe and fear of God. Sometimes we try to make God too familiar to us and we forget His transcendence and His majesty. But when we come to Christ in repentance and faith and recognize our unworthiness and cast ourselves upon Him, He gives us the right to become the children of God, which means we have a relationship, a peace with God that passes understanding. And, and we get to grow in that as we grow and mature and see more truth and see more of ourselves and trust more of ourselves to Him. And it means that we have an inheritance, an inheritance that does not fade away. An inheritance of glory, a future home for all eternity in the presence of God. Yes, an inheritance now of all that Christ lives. We are the dwelling place of God, one of the definitions of Christians. But an inheritance that is to come. Now some of you may think, this is supposed to be a Christmas sermon. I I came here to be inspired. I'm sentimental. I need uplifting. And, And unless I misunderstand John's message and what you, Marty, said, you've told me I'm dead, I'm in darkness, and that I need to be changed and transformed from the inside out, and there's nothing I can do about it except repent and place my faith in God. And can I tell you, that's exactly what the Word of God says. Christianity doesn't simply seek to inspire people. It doesn't seek to lift people up. Doesn't seek to raise people by their own bootstraps. It's not like some kind of tranquilizer that stops how you're feeling and how bad things are. Christianity doesn't say that, well, things will get better. It can't get worse. Things are bound to get better. Christianity doesn't say, you know, if you'll just if you'll just go and exercise and eat right, you'll feel better. Christianity doesn't say, I, I don't have any idea what to say, but I'll just sit here with you. Now, there may be time in comfort in, when you're comforting someone as believers that your presence is what is required. More than your words, God's words are always important. But Christianity does not seek to slap a band-aid on a dead body. There's only one answer. And the answer is, Jesus Christ who is the life and the light of men. Dead people don't know they're dead. How do you know you're alive? Do you remember a time before when you were dead in trespasses and sin? And when God invaded your life with the truth Of Christmas. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the King. Not to help you live a better life, to give you a new life, His life, the life and the light of men. Father, thank you.
for the reality that you have shown us through John's Gospel. As John clearly identifies Jesus as God, as Creator, as John clearly identifies Jesus as the living Word, the way, the truth, and the life, as God clearly identifies Jesus as our only hope for life and for light. Father, the world is in darkness, as some of the old hymns say, and Christmas carols say, the world solemn stillness lays, the world... Even O Come, O Come, Emmanuel mentions things like misery and the coming judgment and the darkness of night. And that is the reality of the world that Jesus came to. It is the reality of our world. But Jesus has come and He is life and He is light. And thus we do rejoice. Rejoice. Emmanuel, God with us, God in us. And so I pray, first of all, Father, that there's one here who is still in darkness. One here who is spiritually dead or one listening that is spiritually dead, that your Holy Spirit will do his task of turning on the light, of bringing spiritual awareness, of creating spiritual sensitivity that they may respond, Father, to the truth of your word in repentance and faith. For those of us who have, I pray that you'll keep our minds rehearsed on the truth of the gospel, that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. I can't depend upon anything. My own righteousness, the structures of the world, or goodness, what I can depend upon is one thing, and that is the name of Jesus. Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the Lamb of God, who came to take away the sins of the world and came to take away my sin. And I pray, Father, that we will experience, that they will experience, those who have not yet experienced this Christmas, not a better life, but a new life, a new creation from the God of all creation. Father, we love you and we're grateful. In your name I pray. Amen.